1: He made a name for himself as a respected expert in the field of 19th and early 20th century afterlife communications, almost at once. He wrote six terrific books that are classics, and it only took him five years. I'm amazed Let's talk about his books. They're called The Afterlife Revealed, What Happens After We Die, that came out in 2011, Transcending the t- Titanic, Beyond Death's Door, 2012, The Afterlife Explorers, The Pioneers of Psychical Research, another 2012 book. That's a tr- He had twins that year. Resurrecting Leonora Piper, How Science Discovered the Afterlife, 2013, Dead Men Talking, Afterlife Communications from World War I, 2014, and The Articulate Dead, They Brought the Spirit World Alive, 2015. These books are wonderful because they are about actual research, they're precise, they're detailed, they're very entertaining, very easy to read, and um, I recommend, frankly, that you read all six. So I'm going to put them in the information um, with today's podcast. I'm hearing from many people now who tell me how badly they want to become sure, certain, 100% that their lives really are eternal. And I think the only way to do that, to develop that level of certainty, is to read a lot of primary source materials and books that are based on primary source materials. So I hope you'll read all six of Michael's books. And, of course, as part of his effort to catalog the modern history of afterlife communications, Michael has just produced, and I've seen it, it's amazing, the first detailed schedule of how this science developed that I've ever seen. There may be others, I've never seen them. His schedule covers six pages, single space, and it goes back to the 11th century. One of the things we'll be talking about today is how this field developed and flowered in the 19th and early 20th centuries as those that we used to think were dead, and they're not, began their apparent effort, it's pretty clear this is ongoing, to raise awareness of our eternal life all over the world. Very early in my research, I stumbled upon some old books by researchers who had worked a century ago that contained wonderful and amazingly consistent communications received through deep transmediums in the very early 20th century. And the volume and consistency of those accounts were what first convinced me that we really do survive our death. We're going to talk about those communications and others that, that were received around the same time uh, today, Michael's books contain all that same level of information, but it's in a form that's much easier to use than what I had way back when. Oh, dear Michael, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Roberta. I very much appreciate it.
1: Now, let, let's talk first about your history a little bit, because some people may not have you know, heard you on Seek Reality before, and, and uh, they may wonder how you got into this field and, and what drew you to it. Because you you were in insurance in insurance right you you had like a regular right. I job. I
0: I majored in journalism in college but when I and then I spent three years in the Marine Corps when I got out of the Marine Corps in 1961 there were you know j- newspapers are closing right and left uh, because of TV was was becoming big at the time so I ended up in insurance claims management uh, for, for 40 years although I did a lot of freelance writing along the way and covering mostly sports. I did I was a long distance runner and and uh, did a lot of writing for running magazines and for the local paper on running events, swimming and triathlons and so forth over the years. So I I always had I had two careers. One as um in insurance claims management and the other in um, uh, as a freelance writer, but um Writing has always been my my first love. It didn't make as much money as I did in, you know, not that I made all that much in insurance, but uh, insurance claims management was my primary field. But anyway, uh, you know, as far as um, my beliefs, I I grew up uh, in the Catholic Church and just gradually grew away from the church during my 20s, I guess it was, and always felt a need to, you know, have some identification with a religion and I I tried several protestant churches uh they didn't work for me and then there was a period I guess during my 40s that you know I didn't belong to anything but I kept looking for books I remember reading Dr uh, Raymond Moody's book uh, you know in 1975 or 76 right after it came out on um, near death experiences and I read a lot of Carlos Castaneda and, and um uh, Cosmic Consciousness, and other books like that, but it really didn't develop until uh, 18, uh, or 18, uh, 1989. I was on a trip to um, uh, New York, and coincidentally, my wife had a conference in Atlanta, Georgia that same uh, weekend, and I took a train from uh, New York City down to uh, Atlanta and stopped in Washington, D.C., and looked for a book, and it was an Edgar Cayce book on reincarnation. I read that on the train, and that that whetted the appetite. My, my initial reading was, you know, all in reincarnation, and then I went from there to near-death experiences, and from near-death experiences to, uh, to mediumship, and I found mediumship the uh, most interesting. Um, I, I took a few trips to England and went to a place called hay on Y. It's called the, the, the used book Capital of the World. It's about uh, four hours' drive from London. And it's a little town that has about um um maybe fifty shops in all, and about half of those shops twenty five or thirty of them are used bookstores so on my first trip there, I brought back um a whole suitcase that's when you could have more than one suitcase <laughs> right of uh, 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 books maybe twenty five or thirty and and read them all, and that that's sort of how it got started and, uh, along the way i you know it was all very confusing. it was just so much confusion that it didn't make sense to me, and I had to read some of the books two or three times to get you know to try and understand them. It was never really made clear uh by the writers the difference between see direct voice and trans voice and so forth. I just sort of right, assumed that right. the reader knew what they were talking about, so that's right as a journalist, yeah, as a journalist, I felt. You know I gotta try and put this in layman's language so others can understand it and so that's how it all started.
1: <laughs> wow, well, I have to give you a lot of credit because you're you're right um the books from from the early part of the twentieth century assume that you know all about what they're doing, and what was frustrating to me what was my my favorite was um uh uh L- what Gladys Osborne Leonard and Charles Drayton Thomas. I just loved them, and I read four of their books repeatedly, just because there was so much richness in them. There was so much that the dead were saying that I had never heard or imagined before, but there were a few things that really griped me, because nobody asked them questions, and this was, of course, 100 years ago that they had answered the questions. No way to get an answer now. One of the things that I I couldn't see they ever said, Michael, was is it solid there? I mean, is it like here? And, of course, we know that it is, but it took me probably years before I found people who actually answered that question. Did you have that kind of problem, too, when you were first doing this?
0: Yeah, yeah. It just, um, you know, it, it, it was very difficult trying to link everything together and, and get a try, try to visual, visualize it. I have to visualize something, that, you know, to yes. understand it. And, uh, that's what I tried to do in my books is to uh, you know present it in a way that the reader can visualize it but so much of it is beyond human comprehension that you can only go so far in that respect
1: yeah i mean we always have to remember we have these very limited minds while we're here and we're trying to understand these enormous concepts but what i love about the those those six books is that you 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 write so entertainingly there's there, there's nothing dense or heavy. It's, it's like, it's like candy. It reads very easily, very much as if you feel you're on top of it. And I know that's hard to do because I'm a writer too. So, to goes off to you for that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that goes back to majoring in journalism in college, trying to, you know. I, I find when I, I joined um, this organization some years ago in, in uh, 1999, I think it was after I won an essay contest and. And found myself with a number of um, academics, and I was asked to be editor of their publication. And all their their writing was, you know, academic. It started; you yeah, know, it was, you know, started at one point, and you, you didn't know what it was all about until the end. And in journalism school, we're taught to, you know state in the first paragraph what this is all yes. about and then explain it. And right, that's, exactly. That's yeah. So they
1: can shorten the article if they have to. to give, it, you don't right. have to go over to another page.
0: Oh, yeah, I remember it well.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I think what you've done in, in really a relatively short career in this field, uh, you, you have. I think you have the deepest understanding of a lot of things of just about anyone. And partly it's because you've concentrated so much in that period of time. Um, you call it psychical research, and I know many of the older researchers do call it psychical research. I call it afterlife research, which is probably dumb. But but what's the difference? Is there a difference in your mind?
0: Well, I call it survival research, or you know, if I but wanted to really make like, it specific, okay. survival research. But uh, uh, psychical <sighs> research didn't necessarily focus on survival per se. It you know. Um, maybe we should jump ahead to the 1930s when psychical research became parapsychology. Um, what happened is that um, a lot of the researchers of the time just became so frustrated with um, uh, psychical research that um, they narrowed it they, they just took out the survival part of it, uh, the spirit part of it. That you know, which really irritated scientists. I mean, they didn't want anything to do with survival or with uh, spirit. So they they limited it to ESP and psychokinetics, and that became parapsychology. And parapsychology went on from 1930s to 1995, and somewhere along the line, I'm not sure what year, uh, the scientists said, we don't like the word parapsychology because scientists make fun of it, so we're going to become consciousness researchers. Yes. so, you know, there's a lot of name even before psychical research, I think psychical research got the name in 1882 when the uh Society for Psychical Research was formed yes. uh in in London, but before that there's research going on for 30 you know, 30 some odd years and really didn't have any name. It was just, you know, investigation of uh mediums. I don't, you know, I I'm, I'm not aware of any name they gave to it, but it, in effect psychical research was just investigating um, anything that uh, was psychic or paranormal it fell outside the bounds of mainstream science.
1: But they they never really respected it. They even those doing the research, um, as you say, they they sort of didn't. They saw it as almost frivolous, not as a serious uh, area of research. When to me, don't you think it's a tremendously serious area of research and a very important one. So I find that very frustrating in the same yeah, way community. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well there were I mean there were the, some of the researchers like Sir Oliver Lodge and Dr. James Hislop yes. and so forth who who recognized that it's the most important thing there is. Uh,
1: That's right. That's you know, right. and That's even somewhere along
0: the, yeah, somewhere along the line uh, or before his death, uh, Sigmund Freud uh who was a you know, a big disbeliever and atheist and so forth, said that if he had to go back and live his life all over again, he'd he'd become a psychical research because he recognized that, you know, that was uh, much more important than anything he had been studying, but it was Isn't too late for him.
1: Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was a character in many ways. But um, yeah. it, it really seems, the mo- this modern period really seems to have begun Around at the early part of the 1800s. I love your your timeline, by the way. I've been playing with it, and uh, because I know a, who a lot of these people are, but I never never thought of them as fitting together in a timeline, and they certainly do. Can you talk a little bit about how m- this modern interest, modern in that it started in the early 1800s, um, how it developed uh, this interest in uh, in life after death and in uh, communicating with the dead?
0: Yeah, well, my timeline starts actually with the 11th century um, A.D., with (laughs) the Catholic Church setting down guidelines for the investigation of miracles necessary for for sainthood. And, and, you know, in in thinking about it recently, I I believe um, the miracles that I heard about when I was a member of the Catholic Church really... Kept me linked to this whole area. I mean, the, the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary and so forth uh, right. in Guadalupe and Lourdes and, and uh, Medjugorje and so forth. I, you know, I hear all about those in, uh, well, not Medjugorje, that didn't start until late 1982. But um, um, there, there always seemed to be something to those that, that made me realize, even though the, the rest of the church teachings didn't make sense. You know, I, there was something to those miracles that um, that uh, made me want to find out more about them. And I think those, you know, studying those miracles um, led me to want to find out more about the whole paranormal and psychic area. And, um, you know, as I said, a bit, you know, the Catholic Church uh, set down these guidelines in the 11th century, and there really didn't, there wasn't much taking place uh over the next five or six hundred years until uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, I've got the, on my timeline 1741, uh-huh. uh, uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, who was a famous um, Swedish scientist, uh, he began his personal investigations of the afterlife. Uh, he was able to uh, clairvoyantly, or or it's not really clear whether it was clairvoyant or did, he did out-of-body travel, but he wrote uh, seven or eight books on what he found in his his clairvoyant experiences and and that was you know, some consider that the beginning of what is called spiritualism um, 1741 although, yeah 1741 and and um then in 1778 uh, there was um mesmerism which um was initially found upon by most uh physicians uh hypnotism in effect uh Yes, um, and that helped people go into an altered state of consciousness and come up with strange things that, <laughs> yeah, they couldn't figure out where all that you know, these,
1: <laughs> right. uh,
0: this information was coming from. But they didn't really link that to psychical research until another forty or fifty years later. But it, it set the foundation for it. Um, 1826. Uh, there was a doctor, a German physician named Just, Justinus Kerner, who um, studied a clairvoyant in his village in Germany known as Frederica Hoff, uh, also called uh, the Seeress of Prevost, I guess it is, and he wrote a book about that in 1829, and that was published in English in, in uh, 1845. And then uh, 1840, we've got Dr. Carl von Rickenbach, who was a German chemist. He began doing research with uh, uh, various sensitives um, on what he called an invisible energy field that um, came to be called odic odic force or simply ode. And he published his findings in 1845, um, which confirmed that various mind over matters, achievements were possible by these sensitives Um, 1847 uh, Andrew Jackson Davis uh, published a book The Principles of Nature um, in which he talked about various um, uh, psychic phenomena that he supposedly uh, that supposedly came to him from Emanuel Swedenborg who was by that time in the spirit world so and
1: Sometime around this time, or maybe in the 1870s, um, it became a fad for people to do table tipping, to do um, other kinds of communicating with with beings not in bodies. Um, I, I remember reading about that, and that that seemed to be how some of the great late 19th, early 20th century deep trance mediums really developed. That they seem to have developed their abilities. Um, in this, these table tipping sessions they would do after dinner, in the fashionable, um, you know, London homes and in in um, in New York. Do you know much about that period? Because I yeah, well, yeah, it that, that all
0: seems. Yeah, that all seems to have begun with uh, the uh, Fox sisters in Hydeville, New York. Uh, and the, the key date there is March thirty first, eighteen forty eight, when these two young sisters. Um, um, heard not, it started with not, you know, knocking in their house, in their bedroom. They couldn't figure out what the knocking was, and, the, and then they somehow realized somebody was trying to communicate with them, and they figured out that two knocks, you know, one or one knock meant no, and two knocks meant yes, and three knocks meant I don't know, or whatever. And so they started communicating with this spirit entity, and um, they called the parents in, and they called neighbors in, and so forth, and they all figured out that they were communicating with a man that had been uh buried in that house uh 30 or 40 years earlier. I, I forget the exact time, but uh uh and that 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 was the real beginning of spiritualism and it just spread rapidly throughout the um, um, United States and in England and France and Germany and right. various other places and according to uh you know Various messages the spirit world prompted it. There was actually Emanuel Swedenborg and Benjamin Franklin on the other side <laughs> felt the need to uh, yeah. communicate uh, to get across it. You know, at that time, this, uh, Darwinism came to us in 1859, I guess it was, and even before that, there's the um, um, a, a big loss of faith among scientists, and and uh, somehow the spirit world determined that they needed to get. Across the message that there is a spirit world, and then that they're there, and uh, supposedly, according to the messages, Swedenborg and Benjamin Franklin figured out how to get these raps through to people, and and um, uh, it that's how it all began, and and uh, it just really sp- spread like wildfire. I think it reached a peak about eighteen, you know, in the eighteen seventies and eighteen um, eighties so the 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 first the first real psychical researchers you know i've always said was uh, judge john edmonds who was uh, chief justice of the new york state supreme court um in 1851 he had lost his wife and he had you know people had recommended to him that he go see some mediums and he thought that was just you know so much hogwash but he, he um Decided to investigate. He went to mediums, and information came through that that was beyond research, and he had no way of, of, you know, being able to um, or or, or to to debunk these people. It just um, it was information that nobody else knew. And so, anyway, that prompted Judge Edmonds to um, continue his research for over two years, and and um, he became a believer in fact he became a medium himself But there was another man, uh, Aidan Ballou, who was a uh, American Unitar- Unitarian minister who began his research about the same time, maybe even before Judge Edmonds, who wrote, a, wrote I think is the first book on the subject um, uh, it's got a long title, An Exposition of Views Reflecting the Principal Facts causes and peculiarities involved in spirit manifestations together with interesting, phenomenal statements of communication. Anyway, you know, either Aidan Ballou or John Edmonds, they, they were the first real psychical researchers well before yeah. 1882.
1: Let, let, let's talk about the, the... because what seems to have been happening in the early part of the 20th century was that the spirits were trying to prove to the scientists who were stonewalling them that in fact they existed. So they did book tests and other um, ways of proving because the the they're so dishonest and dishonorable. The these scientists uh, kept saying that that uh, it was impossible to read minds in the in the in the nineteenth century, and then when all these wonderful great communications came through, you know Gladys Osborne Leonard and others. Uh, they immediately said, oh, that's just mind reading. They're reading the minds of the people in the room so they know what, uh, uh, you know, all about their dead loved ones. We talk about dishonorable. But I was mm-hmm. fascinated to find um, Charles Drayton Thomas was the young man who, he's a minister, um, who researched right. um, Gladys. And I was fascinated to find his books because um, one of them, um, I think it was the one in 1928, was nothing but book tests you know Mm -hmm. um they they would say go to a room in this house where no one's ever been um and there's a bookcase here and pull out a book and um on pay and this is what which book and then on page 27 third line down this is what it says and a lot of the times that they were right about what it said (laughs) And and uh, he later on said that he thought every time that they missed was probably his mistake. He had misheard how they what they had said. How did they do the book tests? That's crazy.
0: Yeah, those actually there were uh, the book tests with Gladys Osborne Leonard took place about nineteen seventeen to nineteen twenty or something like that. Uh, well, Matt,
1: maybe it was uh, a nineteen twenty two book which was some new evidence for human survival. Yeah, that's
0: but but test, there yeah. there were some book tests well before that. I. I don't recall the exact details of one that was reported back in the 1850s uh, by uh, Professor Char uh, Charles Mapes. Um, he he was he was a disbeliever, but his both his wife and his daughter had become mediums, and and uh, in one case, um, his daughter told him that his father, who was in spirit, uh, was communicating and told him to go to a certain book, which was in his. Um, shed outside and in a box that he hadn't opened in thirty five years or so and opened open to page thirty two and he would find uh his the the father's signature. Um so Professor Mapes uh followed up, went to the went to the shed, opened the open, went to that very page and there was his father's signature on that page. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, Isn't that amazing? Then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but so, that of course the scientists would say that, you know, Professor Mate saw it 30 years earlier, and it, you know was in his subconscious, and and um, uh, so it's not uh, veridical or or proof of of somebody communicating with him. But when we get to you know those by, um, um, doc, by uh, Gladys Osborne Leonard, these this was information coming through that the, the spirit or the communicating spirit would say to go to the fourth book on the lowest shelf. Right. Um, and and open it and on page two hundred and two you'd find certain words but you know and yes. th- these these were books that Charles Drayton Thomas the investigator had never seen before.
1: Yes, I couldn't yeah. get over it. Yes, yes, and often they were in a house where he had never been. They had to right, knock right. on the door and say, uh, do, "Do you mind if we go check a book in your library?" Right. I, I was staggered by that, and yet even the scientists just—it seems that when they got to the point where the evidence was so strong, they just started to stonewall it. Right. That was when they made science the the fundamental—I mean—materialism uh, the fundamental dogma of science, and they called right. it that. You can see that in print back then. The, the materialist materialism is the fundamental dogma of science.
0: Hmm. If you have one, a one of the prob- just
1: a religion. It's terrible, right,
0: right, right. And one one of the problems with the with the book tests is they didn't always get the exact wording. Uh yes. the, the communicating spirit would say, "I'm seeing an ocean um, or a sky or something like that." And then the person would go to the that particular page and get verbiage that indicated an ocean or sky, but it wasn't, you know, verbatim as to <laughs> Um, yes. Oh, yeah. You know, exactly okay. what the, you know, as I read in the book. So, that that was ammunition enough for the scientists to say this is just so much bogus. I mean, we 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 can't accept it.
1: Uh, yeah, it, that that was terrible. But there were there were wonderful communications that came through her. But could could you explain how these these deep trance mediums worked? Um, her control was called FIDA, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, well, Gladys Osborne Leonard and Leonora Piper were probably the two most famous uh, trans mediums. They would um, uh, sit down and and just go into go into a passive state. Uh, and, uh, their eye, their eyeballs would roll back in their head, and and um, all of a sudden another voice would be would come through them. Um, the, the, their so-called spirit control would take over their body and speak through them, and. Um, you know, they had no recollection of it all. When they came back to consciousness, they they knew nothing of what happened. But the so. but the,
1: the loved one, the people in the room who had come for a sitting um, and wanted to hear from their loved one, their loved one would would um, be talking to Fida. So they got much better information than you get through uh, a modern um, you know mental medium. It seemed as if it was much more sort of detailed and real. They almost could just carry on a conversation. Yeah, yeah. There was much one.
0: more than just a, a word here to They get you know Inter- full, <laughs> full uh, right. paragraphs. Uh, and uh, there, there were really four parties involved. There was there was the the sitter, the medium, and then the spirit control who was taking over the the um, the, the body of the medium, and then the communicating spirit. Now, yes. uh, now, in some yes. cases, in some cases, they, you know, some of the spirits didn't didn't require a control. They were able to communicate directly themselves. Um, they figured it all out. And I guess it's just like you know, some people here can effectively meditate, and some can't. I'm I'm not a yes. meditator. I can't do it. I don't have the you, patience. Either? I fall asleep. Uh, I fall asleep if I try to meditate, but some people are effective meditators. And I guess when you get on that side, you get, they're effective communicators. And but most yes. of them, most of, most of the souls on that side can't directly communicate and require somebody to help them out and be a so-called medium on that side of the veil.
1: Well, one of the things I loved about reading those books was that there were real conversations going on, just as you would have a conversation, uh, you know, at a dinner table or something, with emotion and and just a, just real real talking. It was as if the person had not died at all, and right. I, I thought I I just wish it were possible for that to go on today because nowadays people would respect that a lot more than they did back then.
0: Right. Yeah, I guess there's still some of it going on, but we don't hear much about it because science has uh, dismissed it, and science you know there, science is not interested in it. And the other problem is that um, it, it does require a certain uh, harmony. You know, once you get the debunkers in there, the skeptical scientists uh, yes. put pressure on the mediums. It, um they try too hard and it doesn't come through. Yes, that, is, that yeah. was one of the biggest things that um, you know the early scientists found out that there had to be harmony, and you had to if if you brought somebody in who really doubted or was very skeptical, that somehow interver- interfered with the vibes coming through, and and you know the the um, sessions just weren't that effective when there was a, a real skeptic there. Of course, the skeptics would say, well, it's because it's not real in the first place. It's nothing to do with harmony. One, one of the more of interesting course, stories...
1: No, go, go ahead. Tell your story, but I, I just no, no, I was to going to say, one, one of the more
0: interesting, it's more interesting a, it's stories... It's all about harmony. Ham- I,
1: I, I think that that's something we want to emphasize to everyone. It's a, without spiritual harmony without um positive energy in the whole transaction nothing nothing works and that's different of course from test tubes and that's one of the reasons science has had so much trouble go ahead michael i just want to make sure yeah, no I, I
0: was well i was going to say say or number one relate it to uh baseball i like to bring in baseball every now and then and you know <laughs> oh, good baseball players say when they when they try to hit home runs they don't do it it's when they relax and just try to make contact is when they hit the home runs, and I think that's the same way in mediumship. When you get these medium, you put the pressure on them with people studying them. They 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 try too hard, and and um, um, it doesn't work as well. It works some some of them works okay, but uh, um, when they when they try too hard, then you know nothing comes through. And same way, same thing is uh, trying to hit a baseball. You just try too hard, and it doesn't work. But one of the one of the more interesting cases was. Um, a uh, researcher named Hamlin Garland. Um, he came upon a, a real um, a good trans medium in Los Angeles. Uh, that this was around, oh, I think it was around 1898 or somewhere around there. Um, and the first two times he sat with somebody told told him about her and and told her that uh, told him that uh, you know she was. Uh, uh, a very good medium. He he sat with her the first time and nothing came through. I guess he was so skeptical that, no, that nothing came through.
1: Yeah, he, he could just, block but he, he,
0: Yeah, he tried a second time and a little bit came through, but it wasn't it wasn't all that much. And, but then the third time he, he got quite a bit and he became convinced that she was a true medium. He arranged to um, um, take her back to Boston to demonstrate her ability before a, a group of... Um, uh researchers are mostly skeptics, uh very skeptical people. And uh first time she sat with them, nothing happened. Second time, uh, nothing happened. So they they wrote her off as uh as a fraud. Uh, but Garland had put a lot of money into it at that point and and um, talked to one of the researchers, um well his name escapes me right now, but he was a pro- professor of physics at Tufts University. Um, to, to, to come to uh, or to go to his house, to the professor's house, there were four people there. There was Garland, Garland's wife, the professor, and the professor's wife, and the and the medium, five people. And they sat there for forty five minutes. Nothing happened. Um, and the professor said, "Well, wasn't a time to give up And Garland said, "No, let's just wait a little longer And somewhere around uh, an hour, an hour and fifteen minutes, things started flying around, the books started flying off the shelves, things started flying across the room and landing on the table. And and then they started hearing voices and then they, um, a voice came through claiming to be, uh, and I can't remember his name now, Brigadier General, somebody other from the civil war who had died 20 years yeah. earlier. He, ca- he he carried on a conversation with, with the four of them, um, for over an hour, giving them all kinds of details. um, so Garland made a you know a record of that. Talks about it in his book. But the, the physics professor he wanted nothing to do. with it. He didn't mention it to his friends or anything else. I mean it was just too you know too far out, and he he felt his credibility would be affected if he told his colleagues about this strange experience in his house. So let's talk about uh, Leonora
1: Piper because you you had she uh, your your book about her um, has a. The afterlife. Please tell that story a little bit. And who was she? And was she was she as good as as Gladys? Because I just thought Gladys was wonderful.
0: Uh, I I think she was as good, or maybe even a little better. I mean, probably more research was carried out with Leonora than with uh, Gladys, and and uh, she was before Gladys, so that's why she stands out more in the annals of psychical research. But she was discovered by. Uh, William James, Professor William James of Harvard University in uh, somewhere around 18, I forget the exact year, 1885 or 1884, somewhere around there. His wife had, um, uh, William James's wife had heard about this woman uh, that lived uh, in the same neighborhood in Boston uh, who had some clairvoyant abilities and told him about it. So he he uh, arranged a sitting with Leonora, and, and uh, information came through to William James that that Leonora could not possibly have known. So William James began to, you know, believe there was something there. Although he he considered it all telepathy, mentally that Leonora was reading his mind. Right. Um, then along the line, some uh, information came through that he didn't even know about. And then they came up with this theory that um they had to remain scientific. So they had to come up with some scientific theory and they called it teleoteropathy or something like that, that that the medium could read the minds of anybody in the world. They could you know, their their consciousness oh, could drift uh fifteen hundred miles away and dig into the mind of uh somebody there and come up with the information. And um when that didn't totally explain it, they they talked about some sort of um Cosmic consciousness—that there's um, um, some some field in the ethers that you can tap into and get any information you want um, and feed it back. But uh, it was actually, and most of the researchers bought into this because it was more scientific than believing in spirits. They didn't want to believe in spirits because it it was not not scientific. And then the the, the, uh, turning point on that was in 1892 when. Uh, George, a man named George Pellu, P-E-L-L-E-W, who was a member of the Society of Psychical Research in in, uh, in New York, um, he was a reporter. He, was, he also had a law degree um, and was writing for the New York. Um, well, I forget which newspaper it was, but um, he was he was 32 years old, and one night he went home and fell down. I think he must have been drunk or something, and fell down the stairs in his apartment and and died. and um, about uh, Dr. Richard Hodgson, who was at that time uh, head of the um, uh, Society of Psychical Research in New York, um, decided to try. He, he knew him; he had talked to him before, you know, when he was alive, and knew him, and tried to communicate with him about three weeks after his death. And sure enough, uh, George Palou started communicating, giving him all kinds of details as t- to his life, about his life, and um, detail which. Uh, Richard Hodgson didn't know, and then you know, Hodgson started bringing in people who knew Palu, George Pelou, uh, and they started communicating with him. In fact, over a period of um, a year or a year and a half, um, Hodgson brought in something like 30 people uh, who knew Palu, and he communicated with all of them he, very, weird. very, you know, very detailed. I just decided. You know, this is goes beyond mind reading. This is you know, there's too much personality involved. There was too much personality yeah. involved, too much volition and so forth, that it had to go beyond mind reading. Uh, and that that seemed to be the turning point. Sir Oliver Lodge and and uh, other researchers of the time accepted that. And and um, William James sort of remained on the fence. You know, all his life he didn't really come out in favor of the spirit hypotheses because I, I think he was. Afraid that he'd lose respect in his profession uh, right. as a psychi- as a psychologist psychiatrist, uh, and um, so he remained on the fence all his life. Although indications were he really, he, you know, he did believe there were spirits there.
1: Yeah, no, he he's uh, certainly a major figure in the history of this field. Um, for someone who was kind of skeptical his whole life. He, that's really what he's most famous for now. Most most of the other stuff he did, I think, is mostly forgotten. But mm-hmm. um, so, so Leonora Piper was more able to take the pressure of being studied? Is that why um, some scientists maybe came to respect her? Uh,
0: I, I think so. She seemed to lose the ability somewhere around the 19... Um, uh, the early 1900s. Um, most of these good um, mediums, they, they seem to retain the ability for a number of years, and then then they lose it. She um, she began to lose it around 1910 or so, and then she was tested at that time by some other scientists, and they concluded that you know she, she was a fraud and and. Oh. Um, So even even though there's all this other evidential information over a period of 20 years, there actually uh, Richard Hodgson, the primary investigator, he he investigated for 18 years on the average of three times a week for 18 years. I don't know how many sittings he had with her, but there's just he he started as a skeptic. I mean, he he was he, he was out to debunk Leonora Piper, but he soon became a believer and as I, As I said, he initially believed it was all mental telepathy, but then after George pelou came came through, he he became a convert to um, uh, the spirit hypotheses and um, continued to investigate her until his he died in nineteen o five and then um, several months after his death, he began communicating through Leonora Piper with William James uh, and with others. Um, but, Amazing. You know, it's still there were still those who doubted, and some of some of the um, the um, information was sort of vague, and you know, most of the scientists expected it to be, you know, straight facts that are That's indisputable. Right. That's Yeah.
1: It's, it's- The point is it's not up to them to set the standards and set the parameters. It's up to um, um, – they they can't do that when they study a black hole, can they? They have to study it in the way the black hole needs to be studied. And they never understood that this is just like studying a black hole. It's so ridiculous. But yeah. you say that you research that are not taught in Sunday school or in Science 101. And I'm dying to hear what those are. What, what, what do you feel that those are? Oh, yeah, that 10 was lessons uh,
0: 10 lessons not taught in Sunday school or Science 101 and um, coming from psychical research. And number one was was there is compelling evidence that consciousness survives death. I mean, we don't hear that. I mean, in Sunday school, all you hear is, you know, that you've got the Bible, and you have to take the Bible uh, uh, on uh, faith, and and, um, uh, that's it. But psychical research gave us some evidence. It's not, you know, it's not absolute 100% certainty, um, but it certainly meets the legal standard, the minimum legal standard of preponderance of evidence. uh, And to to me and to many, it goes, uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt.
1: Absolutely, uh, I feel the same yeah. way too. But you've got to dig for it, and that's one reason I think your books are so terrific for people to read, because there's so much meat in them, That you, and seeing how the, everything corresponds, it, it really, it's impossible. The, the laws against uh, uh, chance, the, the, the possibility that that's not real, I think is almost vanishingly small.
0: Right, right.
1: So, so, so let's talk about another lesson that we get that way.
0: Yeah, well, the second lesson is that proof of God is not necessary to accept the evidence. I mean, everything you read um, these days is, you know, is based upon a, an a priori belief that you have to identify God before you can, you know, talk about an afterlife. Yes. Uh, but the all the research indicates first you, you identify the afterlife first, and there's evidence for an afterlife uh, there, then you can go from there to God, but you don't go from God to the afterlife. It's just the opposite of what, yeah, that's what right. the uh, scientists and the the media try to make it out to be. It's always exactly. God and exactly. the afterlife always go together when there's any discussion. And if you can't get past God, you never get to the afterlife.
1: Good point. Very good <laughs> point.
0: And, um, and there, point? there's a passage in passage. Well, i going to say there's a passage in the Bible. I forget exactly in which book of the Bible it says. Seek first the kingdom of God. Right. Uh, I don't know if that, that the reference was to be to that, but to me that's the the whole key. You know, look for the kingdom before you start looking for God. That's right. Uh, that's that's yeah. absolutely
1: right. Well, actually, we're we're coming close to the end of our time. We may maybe we'll have to save the others for the next time we speak, but. Um, I w- I'm wondering what you think is the most important thing for people to take away from exposure to this evidence. What what do you want people to know about what the work
0: that you do? Well, other than the fact that there is evidence, I mean, once you, if you get past that point, if you accept the evidence, I guess the next big thing is to understand that the afterlife is not the what I often refer to as the humdrum heaven and horrific hell of. Of Orthodox <laughs> right. religion. I mean, that yes. The, the, yes. The, you know the, we have so many people who claim to believe in an afterlife. The the uh, uh, religious people and the afterlife I got from my Catholic school days and a few Protestant churches I attended was, you know, the afterlife was just uh, singing hallelujah you know, twenty four seven floating around in clouds and yep. and there's nothing more to it. But in the all this, you know, in, in the psychical research, indications are that the afterlife and at least in the initial stages is much like the life we're living right now. And, Please. um, you know, it's not humdrum. Uh, it, it can be horrific uh, if for the, for the person who hasn't led a, uh, um, a good life. Um, he might not even realize he's dead. Uh, he, he'll, you know, it's, it's initially like a, a nightmare to him and, and, um, uh, it takes a while to awaken to the, you know, his true condition. But I, I think that's the key point is, you know, if, if we're, you're going to think about a, uh, an afterlife of floating around on clouds, I mean, that, that's not very exciting.
1: <laughs> no, exactly. You're sitting around in a throne room with a harp. Yeah, forget yeah. about that. No, it is, it is a rich and wonderful and beautiful life it's much much more fun than where we are now and um i i just uh, it's impossible actually to die i think that's the thing that struck me the more i i did research the more i came to realize we don't even have a choice in this we're going to go to the wonderful place it will it'll be the as as you say if you've lived a good life it'll be one extraordinarily wonderful mm-hmm. oh michael i'm so glad we did this and when is your book coming out your next one
0: uh, because of the pandemic, it's uh, uncertain. Some of the distribution channels and so forth, uh, it was supposed to come out, uh, like the end of July, but, um, who knows <laughs> right now, it's with white crow books and John said it'll probably be out during the summer. Um, but he can't, <laughs> because of the problems with the pandemic that, um, you can't say, you know, he, he feels sure it'll be this year, but maybe this summer, but who knows, <laughs>
1: Well, we're going to have uh, Michael back when his new book is out. And a little plug for White Crow Books. If you go to whitecrowbooks.com, you can find uh, Michael's wonderful blog and learn more about his books. But John Beecher, who's the head of White Crow Books, is really doing a wonderful job of preserving this information. He works with the very best authors and Uh, It's a British company. I just cannot say enough good things about John Beecher and White Crow Books. And Michael is more of the the reason why I think they're so wonderful uh, because he's the kind of person they publish. I'm so glad you were here today. And it's going to be time now for us to say goodbye. But we'll have you back probably in September or something once we're sure your book is out.
0: Thank you very much. (laughs) I appreciate it.
1: And this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, and I'm really glad you could be with us today. Please never forget that you you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began and you never will end. And when you really get that, everything becomes better in your life. Next week, we're going to be talking to Ilyahu. I hope I get that right. Eliyahu Gion, who's the author of a book called The Laughing Billionaire, How to Become Rich and Happy. I mean, what could be better than that? Become rich and happy. And he's a Kabbalist. And the reason that I, I want to you to know about him and his book is that um, he talks about many of the same principles that Jesus Jesus talks about it, and of course we we use the teachings of Jesus to try to grow spiritually, but there are some people. Why, I don't know. They associate Jesus with Christianity. Go figure. Christians ignore Jesus, so we're we're happy to teach what he taught. But if it, if you'd rather know about others who teach the same thing, then please join us next week. Um, I think you're going to enjoy Eliyahu and his beautiful, cheerful ruminations on how to become rich and happy, which really uh, probably is the ultimate thing we could do on earth, although growing spiritually is supposed to be more important. Please join us next week. And this week, our wonderful friend Michael Tim has been with us for the fourth time. He is the most venerable of the core afterlife researchers who are currently working. I love his work. I love what he does. He's Michael. You are so unassuming. Um, I, I don't think you really make enough of the, the wonderful job that you're doing in preserving all this information and in, in such an enjoyable way. But um, the the. The list that he's put together of this history, which I'm going to try to find a way to to get to you because I think it's, it's, it's a very important thing that you come to understand, that there is a huge history of this information that's been ignored. And um, the wonderful work that he did in putting together those six books, which if you read all six, you will not be able to believe that it's, that it's even, even possible that you'll die. I think that's the biggest gift anyone could ever give you. And, and let's talk about the fact that science still ignores this stuff. The way they treat this is that spiritual stuff just doesn't exist. This is like seeing a puddle on the floor and saying you can really research all the walls all the floor, but you can't look at the ceiling to figure out how the puddle got there. It makes no sense to cut out a major part of reality when you're trying to study reality. And that's going to end, but not nearly soon enough, frankly, for me. I'm fed up with it because it causes so much harm in the world. Fortunately, Michael is more graceful about it than I am. As you know, I have a lot of nonfiction books out uh, um, they're all available on Amazon, and you can get them through bookstores too. And the the um, adult books are all available as audiobooks. If you want to talk with me about anything just go to the contact block. There's a green contact block on robertagrams.com and send me an email. I answer all my emails. It takes two or three days usually, but I can um, I can assure you I will answer your email and I'll answer your questions. And on occasion, people say they really want to talk to me. We arrange a time for that. It's very important to me that you come to understand in your own way, in your own time, that your life really is eternal and there is only good news. So meanwhile, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality, always knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being. And you, most of all, in the universe, you are infinitely loved.
0: You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com.